because you know there's this idea of uh, using the Sinai as the rubbish bin for Palestinian refugees. Mm. It's possible, like the Egyptians have said that that's a red line, but you know things can change. That by hook or by crook, you know Israel will get get its way, and maybe who knows? Maybe the Americans will strung arm the Egyptians to say you've got to accept these Palestinian refugees. Mm-hmm. Who knows? The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Ralph Leonard is a British-Nigerian writer on international politics, religion, culture, and humanism. He has written a, a, a few times for Sublation Magazine along with Unheard and and others, and uh, I'm glad to have him back on to discuss his essay, Israel, a Settler Colonial State. Um, Ralph, welcome back to the Diet Soap Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so your essay for Sublation, uh, Israel, a, a Settler Colonial State, question mark, has gotten a lot of attention, and I'm glad to get a chance to discuss it with you. What kind of... Um, reactions did you get after the the publication of the essay how has it been taken up from your point of view i think for the most part i think it's been quite positive um i think most of the reaction has i think uh liked it in terms of being um principled yet nuanced on the question of settler colonialism and how we can apply it to Israel uh, because I do I do think that uh, a lot of a lot of the times we have this discussion that it is done in a very tendentious or purely rhetorical way instead of actually in a concrete analytical frame so I wanted this essay to really kind of do it seriously and not kind of as a gimmick or as a like a cheap kind of rhetorical point and mm-hmm. i think most of the reaction has recognized that now of course there has been some critical reactions like some of them being from like zionists who kind of object to kind of applying settler colonialism to israel because they kind of feel that a it's a bit slanderous or two that um it kind of portray it portrays like the zionist settlers as like you know white european interlopers like uh, you know the british in kenya and not um not as zionists imagine themselves as jews returning to their natural and ancestral homeland in order to renew the Jewish nation in Eretz Israel or Palestine. So 
Yeah, so for the most part, it's positive. So how is how should we think about uh, settler colonialism generally? Is it a strictly European phenomenon or a project? To, uh, how, what what defines a set, settler colonialist endeavor? Uh, well, settler colonialism, if we want to define it very simply, is you know the movement, mass movement, if you will, of one people to another piece of territory where another people resides in order to turn that territory into uh, a new sovereign territory to erect a new political order onto it. So you can you can find many examples, you know, in the new world, you know, the mm. United States, Canada, Latin America, you know, mass migration of various waves of Europe, mainly European settlers in that context to you know, supersede the originally existing native societies and erect a new political order or a new state on the ruins of that original native indigenous society. So you can, it's not just in the New World, you can find it in Australia, New Zealand. Um, and, it, and it is important to kind of make a distinction between settler colonialism and, say, ordinary colonialism. And I, I like to make this decision two cents that colonialism uh, works on the logic of extraction. Like we, you know, colonists come over to a particular territory and say to the natives, now you work for us. So this was, you know, similar to, you know, how the British Empire operated in like India or in various parts of Africa that they came and ruled, you know, ruled the territory and said to the natives, you now work for us. And while settler colonialism is more interested in the land, not the natives, like they, their relationship with the natives is for them to go away. And this can happen through various means, whether it's, you know, deportation or expulsion, ethnic cleansing, or even genocide. Uh, but the point is they want the land to bring in, bring in imported laborers to work from while colonialism obviously is work is based on extracting surplus value and that's how that what that's what makes israel or zionism the zionist movement a settler colonial movement is that they came to palestine not really for the purpose of extracting surplus value from the Palestinian Arab peasants, but to have the land for to create their own political order out of it. So that's how I would answer that question. So you, um, in your towards the end of your essay, you discuss the um, rise of nationalism um, in the nineteenth century um, and before uh, as providing a context for settler colonialism. I believe that sort of would be how I interpret what you're, you're, you're writing more, there. Yeah, more about Zionism, particularly as a national. Yeah, particular. But, but if before there were, there were, before the French Revolution, say, or before the American Revolution, before the kind of birth of uh, Republican na nations, um, under the context of, of empires and, you know, the the rule of the aristocracy 
in Europe, uh, was such a thing as settler colonialism possible? And, and was would it be fair to think of uh, the way in which an, uh, 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 an empire took control over a region to be more colonial in so much as it was extracting uh, resources from those territories without insisting on changing the character of the region necessarily or the or the mode of production um, well yeah because the obviously in the before the American French Revolution set the set the colonialism as a process was already going on in the new world so there were already you know um, migration of say English settlers or Spanish settlers in the states what is now the United States and throughout Latin America and yes it's true that at that point those colonies were still attached to the mother country to the imperial sovereign so you know mm -hmm. the 13 colonies of the states were part of the British Empire, were part of the British crown. But but because of um, in the late 18th century where you did have the first national movements, that's when these settler colonies began to have developed their own sense of consciousness independent of the imperial sovereign. So that's where you have the American War of Independence, and then shortly afterwards, the wars of independence in Latin America, and because these places wanted to outgrow their imperial sovereign, and that and that's a characteristic of settler colonial movements, you know, throughout you know history. It's part of the modern history that you know even in South Africa, you know, the Boer Wars were you know, a war by, you know, the Africana settler population against the British Empire. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, a characteristic, you know, of settler colonial um, societies that they do eventually uh, outgrow their imperial sovereign, or at least want to, if not independence, at least gain a level of autonomy and a level of distinction. So, for example, mm -hmm. Australia and New Zealand technically are part of the British Commonwealth, but we obviously understand that there is an Australian nation and society that's distinct from Britain, a British society. Mm -hmm. You know, even if there is a common sort of cultural and linguistic heritage in the English language, for example. Right. I'm beginning to see why anti-colonial discourse might sometimes be opposed to Marxism or socialism because um, the uh, idea of socialists is that uh, the that capitalism and the way it expands throughout the world and and brings all all these different people together to be workers is ultimately going to be a progressive force is going to ch transform the world uh for the better and, and liberate humanity and uh an anti-colonial discourse might want to claim that no uh this is exploitation oppression uh i mean i think both things are true and that um uh that we should instead uh 
push against the expansion of capital and of uh, what at the beginning were European uh, peoples and uh, hold people, you know, allow people to remain where they are. Is, you, is that yeah. a simple-minded dichotomy between the the anti-colonial discourse and the Marxist one? Do you think? Uh, yeah, to some extent. Uh, there is there, yes, there is that kind of view that exists on the left that, um, if you will, fourteen ninety two was a big historical catastrophe, and that you know the world would have been better off if I know Columbus didn't rock up in the Americas. But obviously, from the Marxist point of view, you know fourteen ninety two is the beginning of you know the bourgeois you know, era, you know, that's how you, you know, that's where the, the idea, you know, the, the world market started there. That's where, you know, it, you know, the, in, the entire ways of thinking and structure of the world completely transformed at that time. And it was part of the development of a new era of freedom, you know, cause, you know, cause you have this idea that, you know, We've had 500 years of racism and oppression and uh, since 1492. That's true. That's true. But there's also been 500 years of freedom and, and liberation as a result of it. And that, that's, that's a very hard concept to uh, grasp because it seems very just plain contradictory. How, how can that be free how can that produce freedom but it and you and it also looks at uh, or reveals a very tragic aspect of the marxist vision of history that you know history is a tragedy it's not a morality tale or a melodrama that you know i'll put it even hegel i think put it that slavery was once a necessity to for the development of human society that and why slavery is talking about antiquity slavery ancient greece mm-hmm. that part of the tragedy of history was you know the freedom of the few literally and necessarily dependent on the enslavement of the rest that you would not have aristotle or you know the great ancient democracy of in greece without slavery and the two were very much interlinked but, yeah, there's a, there's yeah. an old Louis C.K. joke. He does this thing where he says, "Of course, but maybe," whereas <laughs> like he'll say something that of course would be like the common view of something, and then the but maybe after what 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 comes after but maybe is some horrible thought that you're not supposed to have. And he and one of the uh, routines on with that theme is, of course, slavery was a horrible. Uh, human failure and uh, moral outrage and uh, absolutely uh, is a blight on the history of, of, of the world and has to be opposed wherever it arises. But maybe all human progress comes down to throwing human beings at a problem without any care for their, uh, you know, uh, health or well-being until the problem is solved. And, um, and, and I think that the aim of socialism is to create a society where you don't have to treat human beings as expendable in order to get 
a great uh, productive force yeah. out of the mass of humanity um, yeah. where yeah. you can have three individuals and uh, massive projects for that change the yeah, world. That's, and that's what makes mo the modern world different from the rest because, and this is a point Hegel made, that you know, with modernity, the possibility of freedom, universal freedom, is, re is a real possibility. It's not just a fantasy or a religious uh, dream. And that, mm. and that's what makes it uh, distinct from previous epochs. Because in ancient Greece, that was not possible. It literally was not. That, you know, slavery was a necessity, unfortunately. And it was a tragedy. But that's part of the tragedy of history. And, and with, um, you know, the modern world, that the possibility of transcending the slaughterhouse of history is real. And that's, if you will, the task of socialism. And um, one thing we can say now is that the occupation of the Palestinian lands and the oppression of the Palestinian people is not a necessity in the way that slavery was for yeah, the Greeks, right? Absolutely. Right. So um, go ahead. I was just going to try to tie this in with Zionism and mm -hmm. Israel as a settler colonial state that. Um, one of the, I suppose, ironies of Zionism is that it started, you know, when it actually started to make a presence in uh, Palestine in the 1880s, that that was the time that, um, you know, that colonialism or settler colonialism was just starting to wane. I think because there's two interesting passages that I've read on this that uh, from Walter Lacure, who is a, you know, pro-Zionist history historian of Zionism, mm -hmm. and by Abram Leon, who some of your listeners may know, who was a Trotskyist, anti-Zionist, former um, left Zionist, become anti-Zionist, and they made the point that, you know, by the time Zionism came onto the international scene, there was no more empty spaces for that to be used up because the Europeans had used all of them up. So, you know, the, the, the conflict with a quote-unquote native population would have been in, probably inevitable wherever the Zionist movement would have um, planted itself. But it was certainly in Palestine. It was always, there was always going to be a conflict there because you can't um, erect a Jewish majority state or in Jabot as Jabotinsky once put it, turn Palestine into Eretz Israel, or make Palestine as Jewish as England is English, when the land is majority Arab, without there being a confrontation over it. Right. Um, so, um, well, let's. I want to go through your. I have some thoughts on that that I can't quite articulate. Um, but so I'm going to just so. Let's go back to the question of um, settler colonialism. Um, why is it a significant question whether or not, given what we said at the beginning, that what we're living through now, the development of capitalism is a tragedy that also uh, creates conditions for freedom. Why is it such a vexed question to, to ask whether or not Israel is a settler colonial 
state like the United States was, right? Why why can't that be taken up as an unfortunate uh, aspect of history and the development of capital and then be addressed on a more practical level rather than a moral one, do you think? Well, uh, again, for me, that this question is an analytical question, not a rhetorical, propagandistic one. Mm-hmm. And I, it's for me trying to grasp the true character of this uh, conflict, of this question, the Palestine question. Mm-hmm. And as I said, as I do say in the article, that it's not settler colonialism is one aspect of it, it's one dimension of it, but it's also an unresolved national question. And and uh, I think the reason why it does come up for this question of settler colonialism comes up a lot is, you know, within a lot of the left that, um, uh, you know, settler colonialism has come to acquire a kind of ontological character to it, that it's, it's the new dialectic of history, that the, uh, you know, for, you know, the objective for a lot of the international left is decolonizing Palestine, not fighting for world socialism, for example. Mm. And the danger with that is that you do kind of take up a a nationalistic frame, you know, that <laughs> as opposed to a more internationalist frame. And the, you know, a danger with these kind of decolonial, and I use decolonial to signify the academic literature on this, like Walter Mignolo and those types, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that it's really just a kind of cover for a really reactionary ethno-nationalism and nativist restorationism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, and, I, and I don't really think that that's really going to be any a desirable or even possible goal in Israel-Palestine because of course Israel is not the only settler colonial state and it there's a and just because it is a settler colonial state that's just because those are its origins doesn't mean that conditions can change for the better or that a properly civic free and uh, free um, freedom can't exist between both Israelis and Palestinians. So, for example, you know the United States is a settler colonial state, and it's com- and in the course of its history, it's committed a much more comprehensive atrocities against the various native tribes than Israel has done to the Palestinians. But just because that's happened doesn't mean therefore that the idea that you know every american should be booed back to wherever place in europe or beyond europe that they came from should be a desirable goal you know this is where the whole nonsensical idea of sakai's settlers that you know gets taken up on some aspects of the left is just it's just reactionary ethno-nationalism the idea that each people has their kind of natural homeland that they really belong to and that each people kind of should 
exist within their little delineated space because that's where you know each nation belongs there it's it's a really reactionary romantic nationalist idea that you know was used by anti-semites in europe against jews that was the that was the whole argument against by the integral nationalists in the 19th century that jews are racially not of our nation, whether in France during the Dreyfus affair or in, you know, Romania or Poland, that that uh, their ancestors are from Zion. They're not of Teutonic origin, if you, you know, if you're German, like, you know, therefore they're racially of, not of the nation. They can't exist here. The body politic can't contain them because they're foreign, you know. <laughs> right and and ironically zionism kind of duplicates this reasoning in its own way because it kind of says well actually yes we aren't of this nation we're actually of palestine therefore we should return back to palestine because it because it understands anti-semitism you know and you know jabotinsky has this phrase the anti-semitism of things that which it understands it as a kind of deplorable but rational and understandable reaction of a body politic to a foreign body and then it says because jews were the abnormal condition of jews were they were dispersed across various nations that they did not belong to and did not belong to them and that's the reason why they're being persecuted therefore the solution be well let's return to our natural and organic homeland which is Palestine, Eretz Israel. Right. <clears throat> this is one of those instances where um, I think Sylvain Zizek is helpful, where he says, you know, we should understand that the, at the foundation of ontology is a gigantic disaster and everything is a mistake. So, yeah. you know, you can't return to ontology because it's just, it, you know, the universe exists because something exploded. Um, so there's no, there's no home. You can't go home. Uh, so yeah, the uh, uh, the the interesting thing about your uh, the other interesting thing about your article for Sublation was that um, you walk through the best evidence. Well, some of the main arguments trying to defend Israel from the charge of being a settler colonial state, and then some of the best evidence supporting the idea that it is. And um, I want to so we can maybe go over some of the better arguments. Defending Israel and uh, and then the refutations of those, or maybe one. But before we do, w- do, why do you think it is that those who want to uh, defend Israel's right to exist mm-hmm. feel that it's necessary to uh, defend against the charge of settler colonialism? Because they think that whenever they see kind of pro-Palestine people or leftists use that accusation of settler colonialism that they're effectively saying that it's an illegitimate state, that it's fake or its basis is fundamentally kind of wrong and evil that should be overturned and you know, I'm sure for some of these people that this is like their chance to kind of stop a settler colonial project in its process because obviously 
you can't reverse the United States or Canada or the all the other ones, but Israel is one we might have a chance of uh, reversing. And they and you know a lot of the pro-Israel people will kind of see that and see think that oh this is basically them trying to delegitimize like not just like Israel's right to exist also like the Jewish people's national self-determination that their right to have a piece of territory on this earth that they can claim title to like just like other nations have their piece of territory that they claim mm-hmm. title to and they think that that's just you know and that you know anti-semitic and will inevitably you know put Jews back into galut exile so that's why they reacted that way against mm-hmm. it. And what do you think the strongest argument against the charges that that Israel is settler colonial? Well, the strongest argument is that a that uh, well, it's that Jews weren't were returning to their homeland, not if you will, they were they're not like the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. to America that they were returning to you know their ancient homeland the homeland that you know Judaism valorizes that you know the whole idea of you know one day the Jews will return to Jerusalem you know it's very it's a very deep thing within like uh, Judaism the religion and the culture and you know the Zionist movement weren't didn't didn't go to Palestine to found to find a new Vilna or a new Krakow, like you know, the English settlers founded New York or New Amsterdam. They, <laughs> they, um, you know, they they uh, restored the old, you know, Talmudic and biblical name places in Israel mm-hmm. when they founded it out. You know, now obviously some of this is, you know, it's a clearly, it's a very nationalistic, you know restorationism and but the I would respond to that with uh, another example of a settler colonial movement that's very similar to Zionism Liberia mm-hmm. the Liberian movement which was of you know ex-slaves in America African slaves in America who uh, wanted or you know to return to you know Africa where their ancestors came from and actually some of them were only one or two generations removed from Africa so it was a very close uh, you know still quite fresh in their memory and mm. because you know through and it's the, the the arguments are very similar because that all oh, black people there's no place for black people in white society in America that white people mm-hmm. and black people can't share a common society in America and you know this was also an argument of many white abolitionists even that mm-hmm. the the solution to the black problem should be to put them in a in Liberia or Sierra Leone uh, and it's and actually in Jewish context it was an argument of many anti-semites that well the solution to the Jewish question is put the Jews back in Palestine and we should help them in doing so because 
that's their natural homeland. That's where they really belong. You know, and ironically, mm-hmm. you know, the Balfour Declaration, which is uh, which started the, um, which was like the international legitimation of the Zionist movement by the British Empire, and the only person to oppose the Balfour Declaration in the British cabinet was Sir Edwin Montague, who was the only Jewish member. You know, and he he saw it as basically basically saying that while the Jews that um, it's basically saying that the Jews only really belong in Palestine, and that there's and he was an opponent of Zionism, saying that they're trying to mess up the you know the secure position that integrate of integration that Jews have had in Britain and in other Western European countries and. He's saying that well, you the, the Zionists and the anti-Semites kind of agree on this point, and he was really, really strongly opposed to that. So, so I just wanted to mm-hmm. put that in as a footnote. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is the same with Liberia, and in the process of those, Af- you know, the America Liberians coming back, they also encountered, you know, people who already lived there, who saw them as colonizers as foreign colonizers and the you know those liberians also had um you know they were very religiously christian and they had a certain kind of european influence christian influence kind of colonial type views about you know we're going to turn this empty land into a new jerusalem and stuff like that so it's it's a structural argument I'm making, not really a, a moral one about settler colonial, colonialism. Mm-hmm. That me saying that the Zionist movement structurally was a settler colonial movement is not is not to deny the historic Jewish connection to the Holy Land or you know the history of oppression that Jews had in both Christian and Muslim societies, or is even saying that Israel should be quote-unquote abolished or destroyed or any stuff like that it's just a purely analytical concrete argument as to the origins of the state i feel as though the more damning charge against israel is that it's an ethno state Mm -hmm. um rather than that it's a settler colonial state yeah Yeah. and that uh there might be political traction there in a way that there isn't on the question of whether it's settler yeah. colonial. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, somehow that's not being taken up very much um, uh, in this moment by the left. Uh, maybe it is, but not by the Marxists that I am arguing with on Twitter. It, um, it, <laughs> you, I, you think could, it, it, I think it is, but it's intertwined with the settler colonialism argument to be a kind yeah. of while Zionism is white European, you know, racial nationalism. So I think they argue in that in that sense. But yeah, but that's not that part isn't yeah. really true, right? But it is yeah. true that it is an ethno state yeah. based on yeah. and, Jewish and identity. Zion, yeah, and Zionism is an ethno nationalist ideology, right? Right. Um, and I, which I and I make this argument in the in the piece that. You have also part of the, you know, because a lot of things are said about Zionism and a lot of them are kind of tendentious and just wrong. Mm. But 
but you also, but to, in order to truly understand Zionism, you have to understand it as an ethnic nationalist movement and not just as a colonizing enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that right. that's where, that's why I make the point about how it fits into the context of the various waves of nationalism in modern history, because Zionism belongs to kind of 19th century style romantic nationalism that arose in Central and Eastern Europe after the 1848 revolutions, you know, mm-hmm. and because and that's where it arose. That because it, it's not a coincidence that Zionism arose in the same places where Jews lived in between competing nationalist movements and ideologies many of them were also anti-semitic against them mm-hmm. so then it would logically become you know it would logically uh produce like jews will have their own ethno-nationalism you know if the ukrainians the romanians the germans the poles are having their own nationalisms why can't we you know <laughs> right um and what uh, here's a question I wrote down, and I, I should probably know the answer to it, but you can teach me. Um, why did the nation of the American and French Revolution give way to these ethno-nationalist movements um, instead? Why why wasn't republicanism, where everyone in a territory had equal citizenship rights and was part of the republic, not well, why wasn't that the dominant form that nationalism took? Uh, in the 19th century um part of it was after the napoleonic wars the defeat mm-hmm. of napoleon and even even during napoleon's um, conquest because um, german romanticism for example arose in reaction to napoleon's conquest of germany where they made the critique that um that you know the universalist ideology of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, is really just an ideological cloak for French conquest of Germany and suppression of German identity and culture. So, mm-hmm. so ironically, you know that ironically, the post-colonial critique of the Enlightenment as you know universalism masking some kind of racial. Uh, interest is not really that original, you know. <laughs> the, yeah, <laughs> right. it's been said before. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Another is just you know the defeat of the French Revolution, you know, because after Napoleon was defeated, the uh, French Revolution, or what what was left of the French Revolution in its original phase, was kind of suppressed, and you know the Congress of Vienna with Metternich also tried to suppress like Republican and liberal movements. Uh, So there was that aspect of it. And there was also like a general kind of ideological reaction to the enlightenment universalism and rationalism through kind of, you know, the romantic reaction, which is now romanticism is a very broad category, Mm -hmm. but there was a, Broadly speaking, the critique of the Enlightenment was that it was so abstract and purely rational that it didn't take into account like the concrete and people's kind of primordial emotions and you know mm. textured 
cultural relations and then you had this development of like cultural nationalism which took you know based around certain things like language the language was like the expression of a kind of primordial uh communion with your ancestors so like when you speak a certain language you're you know you're talking in the same tongue as your ancestors did and that expressed a sort of natural and profound bonds that say you know the the um people that the french revolution didn't take into account or kind of ignored because i think um one zionist thinker called max nordau makes makes this precise point when he's criticized the men of 1792 for their mathematical logic because he was he was arguing that when they did when they were in power and you know executed their various policies like jewish emancipation that they just did it from a very strictly abstract rationalism not from a kind of you know they didn't really take into account like the re- the reality of you know profound ethnic or national bonds that united people and that was you know and this is a common criticism of cosmopolitanism that they seek to skirt over supposedly deeply entrenched divisions within humanity for a so-called abstract man you know and it reminds me of the quote by the maestra who was a count enlightenment thinker that oh i've seen germans i see englishmen i see frenchmen but i've never seen a man you know yeah i would my counter to that would be um when you go to the grocery store or to the mall or to any shop really in the world you are seeing the products of abstract man yeah because because the abstraction of the labor of labor power which is universal now is working, coordinating workers around the world to produce products that they couldn't produce in their local area alone. And so those, those when, wor- when workers go to work and get a wage and produce goods that are entering the world market, they are that abstract man um, and, or and abstract also, woman. And it also inverts like the 18th century, not, you know, the American French revolutionary concept of patria or homeland because for in the american french revolutions the idea of a homeland is not a geographic concept it's an it's an idea it's a civic idea that is to be achieved in the future by creating a you know a free civic bourgeois society that's the that's the that's the patria in those contexts whereas in the kind of nationalist movements that uh, arose afterwards, the idea of a homeland then became began to take on a very specific geographic quality that it's about you know the concrete land, you know the landscapes, and people have a kind of unique mystical relationship to their land that they have exclusive title to by virtue of an ancestral historical right. You know, so that's the so, for example, in the German context, because the Teutonic ancestors were here first on this patch of land 
and I apparently descend from them. Therefore, this land is mine and my own exclusively because it's the mm -hmm. authentic expression of the German national character. You know. The other day I confessed to, to uh, Chris Catrone that the only way I can think is through uh, movie references from the 80s. So mm -hmm. forgive me here, but... Um, <laughs> The, James Brown did a, a song for Rocky Four, where Rocky goes to the, the, the USSR and fights a, a Soviet and wins. And the song is called Living in America. And a lot of the lines are about, like, uh, the transcontinental highway system, car culture, the power that you have to just go wherever you want without any destination in mind. And it's all about this sort of liberating effects of mass production and modernity yeah. and America as a place for individuals to realize themselves in ways they don't even know that they're they want. It's like there's a line like um, set out on the highway, you, you know, you don't you don't know where you're going. You don't. And you but you might find out who you are along the way, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that is still in the United States, at least a while ago, a uh, part of the ethnic identity of not having one i think um <laughs> so uh yeah, that's yeah. that's the, that's the unique thing about america is that it is the enlightenment cosmopolitan republic par excellence that it's it's not yeah it's based on an idea it's not really based on a like geographic concept because uh, and it's not um an ethnic or racial or in, on principle it's not supposed to be an ethnic or racial or religious basis like to be american like is a completely open like identity and anybody can come in here and be part of you know the nation the or the republic i should say because again mm -hmm. america is not really a nation in the kind of the sense that it's known today it's a yeah. republic, which right, yeah. Based on and, idea. yeah. I mean, obviously, America has failed to live up to its own identities uh, go over and over again. But nonetheless, if there's something good about it, it's in that James Brown song, you know, about just anyone can take off on the highway, become who they want to be, and mm -hmm. you're not tied down to a, a particular place or a particular way of life. Um, necessarily, uh, because of the power of the collective work of all these Americans, which if you watch the music video, they're heavily, it's like watching a man with a movie camera, only it's 1984 and yeah. it's for a Rocky movie. But, yeah. um, uh, and you, and you could, go ahead. you could say, you could say that America's history in terms of having a highly, uh, racialist like aspects to it that, you know, mm -hmm of official white supremacy is in part like due to the fact that it doesn't really have that kind of rooted ethnic sort of character. So mm -hmm. people, so the only kind of nationalism it's had to rest on has been that kind of white Anglo-Saxon racialism. So that's mm -hmm. like the, that's the closest thing you can have to an American ethno-nationalism. I think that's given way. I, yeah. I, 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 to, I mean, not entirely, but it's, it's giving way. Um, so let's talk a little bit uh, about the current political moment. Um, people should go read your, your essay in full. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.